This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you're chasing something that's fun, it's probably fun for a lot of people. It's probably exciting for a lot of people. There's people who are doing it not for the money, but because they love it. And I would say the way to overcome those odds is to put on your sales hat and do the stuff within your business that's not fun. Like go sell yourself and your ideas, right? Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. We're exploring some different territory today, so I wanna take a minute and set the stage. Before I thought of myself as a creator, I thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I got into the whole world of online business through startups when I was in college. Back in 2010, startups were hot, they were sexy. Companies like Uber, Facebook, and Airbnb were just starting to hit the mainstream and you saw headlines about companies raising millions of dollars and selling for millions more. How could an arrogant 20-something like me not get caught up in that? But as I've gotten older and experienced the highs and lows of startups myself, I've also experienced many different forms of entrepreneurship. I've done the startup thing, I've done the venture capital thing, but I've also freelanced, and my business today is all about content creation. I believe one of the biggest reasons that I've found some success as a podcaster and creator is due to my time spent learning the ropes of being a startup guy. And I believe one of the best ways that you can become an independent creator is by embracing the business side of your creative business. So today I'm bringing on a creator with nearly 150,000 followers on Twitter, two podcasts, several courses, and more. His name is Nick Huber, and he's spreading the gospel of what he calls sweaty startups. He says all the richest people he knows got started in sweaty and gritty service-based businesses, and he is no different. I didn't really consider myself an entrepreneur until I got excited about a specific opportunity. I wasn't one of the kids in the, in the, you know, hanging out on the tech blogs and thinking about what business idea I wanted to start. I was an opportunist. So when something hit me in the face that I thought, hey, this might be a chance for me to make a little bit of money, I was excitable. In 2011, Nick was a student at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. At the same time that I was getting excited about these high-tech startup companies, Nick was preoccupied with a problem. During junior year move-out week, um, I was trying to lease my apartment on Craigslist for the summer, and so was everybody else in my college town because everybody was leaving, right? So I was not getting any hits on anybody who wanted to live in the apartment, but I did get one person who called me up and said, hey, I want to store my son's stuff in your room. And I was like, what? You want to store his stuff? Like boxes of, of his literally physical things? He's like, yeah, he's got to go home for the summer. He's getting kicked out of the dorms. Can you go pick up his stuff and put it in your dorm? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I made a deal with the mother of this student, went and picked up all his stuff. It was way more than she said. I basically filled my entire 1999 Cadillac DeVille, which I had bought off my grandma about seven years earlier. Yeah, the, the rest is history. Once the stuff was in the room, I could not 
actually have anybody living there after that, right? So the options were to forget about it and make 150 bucks and just call it a loss all summer or go ahead and try to fill that room up. So I drove around college campus filled, filling up anybody that I could to get their stuff to fill up my room um, with storage, charging by the box. And in the end of the week, I was out of space in my room and I'd filled up not only the room next to mine, but my business partner now, Dan Hagberg, he had a basement in his house. We filled up that entire basement. And a week later, we were sitting on our bed with about eight grand cash. And we're like, wow, that was kind of fun. And um, this could be an opportunity. This was the beginning of Nick's interest in sweaty startups. And for a guy going to an Ivy League school like Cornell University, he was already taking the road less traveled. We're among a very successful driven peer group with a lot of people who are really super successful in corporate America right now. So for us to go after a little sweaty startup moving boxes up and down stairwells, you know, it was it was definitely a risk. Fortunately for Nick, that risk paid off big time. And even though he didn't get that finance or consulting job, he was quickly making a pretty great living with his sweaty startup. So the first year we did, like I said, about eight to $10,000 in revenue. The next year, it was our first year out of school. We set a goal of 250 customers. We hit that goal. We did about $330,000 in revenue. Year after that, $750,000 in revenue. And that's when we you know, made a couple hundred grand to put in the bank, Dan and I, my partner. Um, year after that, 1.5 million. Year after that, 1.8. Year after that, 2.2. And then you know, 2.2 a year in revenue about until we sold the business in January, 2020, operating on about a 20% margin. So you know, 150 to $400,000 a year profit throughout that time. Nick's sweaty startup made him a millionaire before he turned 30. His student storage company has grown to 34 major colleges across nine different states. They service over 10,000 customers each year with a team of five full-time employees and over 200 part-time employees. And today he's managing more than $20 million worth of self-storage assets. But here's why I'm bringing him on Creative Elements. Over just the last couple of years, he's built one heck of a following on Twitter, through his podcast, and his real estate masterclass, a course he sells for $2,500. So in this episode, we talk about Nick's experience building a sweaty startup, Nick's approach to building a following on Twitter, why Twitter has accelerated his career 20 years, and how you can make your own creative business stand out by getting a little sweaty yourself. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Just take a screenshot, tag me, and I'll be excited to share it on my own story as well. And now, let's talk with Nick. It was, frankly, a running joke among our friends on the track team, right? Oh my God, look at this really creepy van that Dan and Nick bought on Craigslist for $1,500. They're moving boxes around and... I mean, these guys were going to get jobs in New York City for $100,000 a year, you know, right off the bat. So the opportunity cost was huge for us. I'm trying to think back to where culturally we were with like the sharing economy in 2011 and how weird that felt in 2011. Did people feel weird thinking that they were going to store their stuff in just somebody's house? I think I didn't tell him that it was going to my room, right? I, I made myself look as professional as possible. And it was kind of like when Uber had just launched. Everybody had an iPhone, I think around 2010, 11. So right around that time is when everybody got an iPhone. And um, Uber was, I think, just founded, right? And getting started. So pickup and delivery was starting to be a thing. And they would find me online, fill out a little quote request form on a WordPress website that I built, and I would go get it. Why do you think that worked initially? Because, you know, self-storage has been around for a long time. So why were they finding your website versus some other reputable storage facility with history? 
Yeah. So I had two options. I could pay for AdWords and try to get, you know, pay digital marketing online, or I could grind and do basically free marketing in person. So I ran around and slipped flyers under dorm room doors. I went into, you know, chapter meetings at the sororities and announced what, what I was trying to do. And I would go on Facebook groups and post, and I would send emails to the listservs of friends and um, just do anything that I possibly could to do some grassroots guerrilla marketing. I love that because, you know, a lot of people would try to automate this entire thing from the beginning and think like, what is the easiest way for me to get this full? And sometimes the easiest way is actually the most automated. They think it's the most automated way, but it's not actually the easiest way. Some thoughts around that. I think people try to scale and think about scale too early um, in, with entrepreneurship. And I'm going down the entrepreneurship rabbit hole, which I know you're not all into, but I think every creator is an entrepreneur in some way, right? So I mean, it's really fun and easy to think about, okay, how can this be giant? How can this business be really big? What do I need to put in place for this company to go, you know, berserk? And if we would have done that, if I would have done that, I never would have done that guerrilla marketing. I never would have chased some of those things that, you know, didn't scale. And I would have really kind of struggled to get momentum. So we bootstrapped, we did a lot of the work ourselves, we did things that did not scale. And we thought really small early, like, hey, how can we make 10 grand this week or the next year? Okay, how we need 250 customers. That's all we need. We got to figure out how to do it because we're going to learn a lot. If we try to build systems that'll survive 10 years where we can grow this business to $50 million a year, A, we don't know how the heck to do that. We have no experience. We're 20, 21, 22 years old. And B, um, that's pretty risky if we put that kind of money into infrastructure before we've actually tested our concept and made some money. Talk to me about that first, let's even say that first summer in your mindset around resilience, because a lot of people, even if they wanted to go this route and they said, you know what, I'm going to get myself out there. I'm going to go to these meetings. I'm going to put flyers under doors. If they didn't see success immediately, it would just like crush them if they didn't have any entrepreneurial experience before. So did you have any like goals or thresholds to say it has to do this or I'm calling it quits? I'd like to say that it all was just a really successful operation from the very beginning, but that would be a lie. Um, we had a third partner that owned 20% of our business that I rarely talk about that he ended up just saying, all right, guys, this is not worth it. Like, I'm going to go to law school. <laughs> and uh, I mean, there's a dip. I mean, Seth Godin has a great book called The Dip, and it's, you know, it's really fun early on. It's really fun when you're building the website and five days after working on the website, you see a functional website. When you're getting those first customers, when you're moving so fast at the beginning of a business idea six months in, a year in. And for us, it was really two to three years in where we're like, wow, this is a lot of work. We're not growing as fast as we thought. We have to put our head down here and just grind. It's not entrepreneurs telling everybody what to do. We have to work. And um, that was kind of hard. I, I guess what got us through that is that we were just energetic. We were still excited. We, we didn't try to conquer the world on day one. We set small goals and we realized that, hey, this is a 10-year game. We don't need to win this game in, in a, a year and a half. Well, I think what's so remarkable about it is, you know, we're talking about 2011, 2012. Today, there's a little bit more chatter around like, hey, the boomers are trying to get out of their businesses. There's all kinds of opportunities here. You see other people like uh, Brent Bishore very publicly doing uh, these types of buyouts. But in 2011, who were you looking towards as a model or did you have a model at the time? Well, luckily, like I said, I didn't really have this, I'm an entrepreneur mindset. I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur. It wasn't a buzzword back then. I mean, TechCrunch was just getting big. I mean, it had already been bought by Yahoo or AOL, I mean, but yeah, tech, Shark Tank was just getting started. I mean, the sexy new business ideas were just getting sexy in 2011. So 
but I didn't follow any of that. And I think if I would have, I would have gotten, you know, grass is greener, fear of missing out. I'm going to do something else because there were so many sexy ideas becoming in the, and San Francisco was the hub of Silicon Valley and, and everybody moving there after college who wanted to start companies. I'm kind of glad I wasn't following all that because I would have probably given up on my little sweaty startup. Yeah. And, and to follow that thread a little bit more, you know, what kinds of things were you reading about? Were you reading things? Were you listening to podcasts? Like, did you have any type of input around the entrepreneurship of the zeitgeist at the time? So I think, I think that was another one of my advantages. I think you can learn a lot by reading books and you can learn a lot by listening to podcasts and listening, you know, reading the sweaty startup website or, you know, studying entrepreneurs. You can learn a lot, but you can learn more in three weeks, actually trying to hire some people to do some work and get paid for it than you can for doing all that stuff. I mean, a book is only so valuable if you can't apply it to your life. The principles in these, in these self-help books and all this entrepreneurship material it all is great to think about. And it's, you're just in law. A lot of people I think are just in la la land. They're sitting here listening to podcasts. They don't have any plans to be an entrepreneur. They're just thinkers. They're thinkers. They think all day. There's thinkers and there's doers, right? And, and they don't always collide at all. The doers often don't give a crap about these self-help books. They're out there just trying to figure it out. So I'm underselling it a little bit. I mean, I was, I was very studious on hiring, training, managing, how to do this stuff the best way possible to try to grow our company. And I was into the self-help. I was reading the books, but I, I will say that you learn it by trying to do it. No, nobody's life is exactly the same as your life. So when you read these books on how Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg did it, how they succeeded, trying to apply that to Nick Huber's life in Ithaca, New York, without any of those resources is a fool's errand in my opinion. Did you have mentors or people around you doing similar things? Yeah, I did. I had a professor at Cornell named Dan Cohen, and he had built and sold a sweaty startup. I think they were doing like foundation repairs, like a leaky foundation on a house or even a collapsing foundation. They had this technology, or basically excavators. They dig out the foundation, they reinforce the walls, and they put dirt back. It wasn't the only one doing it. It wasn't a new idea, but he made a really good living doing that, and he learned a lot about building a sustainable company, even in a tight labor market. 2011-12 was not the same as it is now as far as hiring labor employees. But um, once people knew that, hey, these guys are legit, they're hustlers, we're, they're going to go out and do some things, we kind of gravitated towards the people who weren't necessarily the, the thinkers or studiers on entrepreneurship, but the people who had been in the trenches and done it. So yeah, my dad's boss built a construction management company that was awesome, started talking to service business entrepreneurs and about you know what works when you're hiring, training, marketing, those type of things. After a quick break, Nick and I explore the advantages of building a sweaty startup and the challenges that come along with building any business, no matter what kind. And a little later, we talk about Nick's approach to Twitter. So stick around and we'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I wanna tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. 
Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot creator. Hey, welcome back. A lot of us get into this world of being a digital creator because it seems like a great way to earn a living. It almost feels like the new American dream, getting paid for expressing yourself online. But it is hard to build a business that supports you as a creator. So I wanted to explore how challenging or not challenging it was to build a sweaty startup instead. I had an advantage because my business was not sexy. It was not fun. It was not exciting. Nobody did my business because they were passionate about it. So therefore, the competition was weak. And the companies that did it did it because it's a, you know, a small business that they started. And it's kind of a pain in their butt. They're done innovating. They're trying to milk the business for all it's worth. And the technology is not advancing. They're not trying to be cutting edge, any of those things, right? So, you know, the advice that I have for somebody chasing a passion project might not be what they want to hear. You know, it's, it's, if you're chasing something that's fun, it's probably fun for a lot of people. It's probably exciting for a lot of people. There's people who are doing it not for the money, but because they love it. And I would say the way to overcome those odds is to put on your sales hat and do the stuff within your business that's not fun. Like go sell yourself and your ideas, right? And every entrepreneur is a salesman, in my opinion. So if you can master that, then it's not about the work. It's about how well you can sell it. And by virtue of doing something that is less sexy, is less fun, did that also give you the opportunity to not work 60-hour weeks or was it still like soul-crushing in the beginning where you are putting in 60-hour weeks, 80-hour weeks? We were, we were in a seasonal business. So every year when the, when the colleges moved out, we went from six full-time employees to 300 part-time employees and it was the Super Bowl and we worked 20 hours a day for three weeks, right? But yeah, in January, we did fishing trips in the Florida Keys. And in, you know, July, we'd go home to Indiana and, you know, work on hiring for deliveries, but, you know, maybe 20 hours a week, right? So I would say that average throughout the year, we worked 30 hours a week and, and built a modestly successful company. 
You bring up hiring, and that's something I want to touch on too, because a lot of people, myself included, who are drawn towards the internet content creation media world often don't want to be accountable to employees either. And I think that's probably a story I tell myself and a limitation that I have about how I hire and train. So can you talk a little bit, a little bit about how to successfully hire somebody as a business owner so that it actually feels freeing and not like a new accountability? Yeah. So I think it all starts with the revenue streams and how much you charge for your services. I think 80% of people out there don't charge enough. They don't they do not charge enough money for what they produce or what they do. They don't maybe they don't charge enough for their podcast ads or maybe they don't charge enough for their consulting or their design or their web design or whatever it might be. So step one is you have to charge enough to to make it worthwhile to hire somebody. Because if you're not making a hundred dollars an hour doing what you're doing, it's gonna be really, really hard to pay somebody even twenty to thirty dollars an hour after all the sunk costs, after all the this extra time, after all the setup, after all the overhead of running a business. So yeah, you gotta get uncomfortable charging good money so that you can pay good talent. And then, I mean, another another common misconception is that it's hoping that person, that unicorn who cares about your business and your project like you do walks in the door and says, Jay, I really want to work for you. Like, what do I have to do to work for you? Your project is amazing. Like, I, I just care so much about what you're doing. And literally business owners think that that's how it should work. And they just hope that that person walks in the door that's going to be perfect for their company. No, you have to get uncomfortable. Again, you have to put your sales hat on and you have to go out and find that person and convince them and sell them on coming to work for you. And even then, even when they come in the door, they're not going to care about your company like you do. So you need to give them guidance. You need to talk to them about what exactly is expected. You need to hold them accountable and you need to give them structure. Entrepreneurs, people like me, I love chaos. I love making decisions. I love the uncertainty of what's going on. But an employee, forget about it. They hate that, right? They, they want to be told what to do. And they want to have clear structures on how to make decisions. They want to be set up for success. And yes, they can make decisions. Yes, they can innovate. Yes, they can add to the company and help it get more valuable. But they, you can't expect them to be as self-guided as you are as an entrepreneur. This is a pattern I'm starting to see with people operating at a really high level that I don't think gets talked about enough. This idea of really going out and finding the employee you want and selling them on joining you as opposed to putting up an ad socializing that ad, trying to pick the best candidate from that list. How do you think about finding somebody that is the right fit? Every big hire that's really supercharged my businesses over the years, and I think about our COO and our student storage business, I think about the CFO that we have now at our real estate private equity company, and even the people who you know, are, are integral parts of like our customer service management team, things like that. We almost always found them through a personal network, and we almost always had to convince them to sell them on what we were doing. They had a job. They had opportunity. They were doing really well at their company. They're go-getters. The people who produce in this world, the, the 20% of people in this world who get, produce 80% of the output, they are not hurting for work. They are not hurting for opportunity. They probably are pretty happy at their job. So you got to sell them on your vision. And part of that is having a good opportunity. And part of that is getting uncomfortable and going out and making it happen. How do you think about delegating? How did you learn how to delegate? How do you think about training these people, even if they are go-getters? Like, what is, what is your process for getting somebody up to speed so that it really does take work off your plate? Yeah, it's a really uncomfortable process. I mean, think about how wild it is. Just if you, if you zoom out to a thousand feet and you told somebody, hey, I run this business where I am liable. It's my money. It's my business. It's my baby. It feeds my family. This business feeds my family and I'm going to meet somebody for a 30 minute interview in a coffee shop that I've never met. 
I'm going to run a background check on them, and then I'm going to hand them the keys to my truck, and they're going to drive it around, and they're going to talk to my customers, and they're going to go to my warehouse. That is a phenomenally unique experience to put that kind of trust in somebody else, and it is super uncomfortable. It's scary as hell, and the only way that we were able to do it well is just do a lot of it over the years. We got burned by employees. It's part of business. We got, you know, they quit on us. They robbed us. They did everything else. And putting that trust in them, not easy, right? It takes practice. It takes practice on vetting the people. It takes practice on communicating with the people. It takes practice on interviewing them in a way that you can try to get to that moral compass of whether or not they're going to steal from you or, you know, whether or not they're going to care about your business in a way that allows you to, you know, offer consistent service to your customers. You mentioned you've been burned over, over the years by employees. And this is another limiting fear that I have when it comes to hiring, which is I think about those potentials for things going wrong. And then I think to the details of like, what does it look like to clean that up? It sounds like a bad time. Uh, so I want you to convince me that that's worthwhile. <laughs> I just think, you know, if we, if we go back again to the concept of, I mean, y- you get bad, you have bad luck, you have customer service problems. And, and as the owner of a business, you are going to deal with every major problem. The customers don't call you and say, Nick, this, you know, your company is awesome. I just can't believe how good they No, You don't get those calls. You get the calls that when there's a problem and the good customers, they don't hear, you don't hear from them. They don't write a review. The bad customers, you do hear from them and they do write a review, right? So, I mean, getting over that uncomfortability is one thing, but I think just starting with looking at, okay, early in the business days, me and Dan were doing all the work. We were answering the phones. We were making the schedules. We were doing everything. And we finally said, okay, what is, what is, the lowest value work that we do. Like, okay, yes, we obviously have this high value work where we're hiring, we're training, we're growing, we're investing, we're marketing, we're overseeing these things. What's the low value work that we do? I'm going to start with delegating that. I'm going to delegate some of this low value work. And another big part of it is, especially in the creative world, is some people just let themselves get totally abused by customers. Scope creep happens. They don't stand up for themselves. They don't set reasonable expectations. They bid work and the work gets bigger and they can't change the price and they end up losing money. You know, having mutual respect and getting the right kind of customers, getting the right kind of customers is really, really huge because if you get the wrong kind of customers, you can never make money. You have this like consummate entrepreneurial mindset where you have strength around these ideas of, like standing up for yourself, negotiating well, hiring well. Did that all come from practice or is... Is there another source? 95% practice. And I think the other, I mean, when you, when you finally get a little bit of, in, and I'm not successful to the means of most of the people out there, right? I'm, I'm just a guy that has, you know, building, trying to build the life that he wants to live. But when you've seen it work for you and you've seen your business grow and you've seen the cash in the bank account at the end of the year, and you've done that for 10 years, you get a little bit more confident in your views. So I think part of it is practice and part of it is just the results that come with seeing how successful entrepreneurs make it. And you also, once you get there and you talk to entrepreneurs who have made it and they've built big businesses and maybe even sweaty startups and you realize that, hey, these people aren't spectacular people. They're just figuring it out as they went as well. It gives you a little bit more confidence to hold on tight to these ideas of hiring complete strangers to run, to, to work with you and your company, you know, standing up for yourself with customers that are not the kind of customers that are for you and the ones that you want, if you're going to build a scalable company and, um, you know, implementing a lot of the other things that, that help you grow as a, as a business owner. Nick really came onto my radar through Twitter over the last several months. It seemed like I was constantly seeing a thread about real estate from this sweaty startup guy, but Nick's threads are a lot different than what I typically see on Twitter. His threads were dense, transparent, and in-depth. It's like he's documenting the nitty-gritty of building a storage company business and sharing it all openly. 
and it seems to be working because nearly 142,000 people have started following Nick on Twitter. So I asked him when he began to take Twitter seriously as part of his process. I've been an anti-social media, hands-on entrepreneur for 10 years, going on 11. And 2018, I started a podcast called The Sweaty Startup because I was really passionate about entrepreneurship. And I was you know, talking about these concepts right here. And hey, hey, these new ideas aren't all they're cracked up to be. Look at the, look outside, close your computer, look, at, look out in the real world. There's opportunities everywhere to make money. And I didn't know where to go to reach people to talk about that. At the same time, we also started building our first self-storage facility and, and bought another self-storage facility. We needed to raise capital. Networking became really big in my career, what I was doing to, to grow and build in the next phase of life. 2019, late 2019, a friend of mine came on my podcast, The Sway Startup. His name's Moses Kagan. He's a Twitter personality as well and raises a bunch of money for uh, multifamily deals out in Los Angeles. He came on and said, Nick, you know, you're raising, you're doing self, he, first he was talking about the opportunities in the sweaty startup world. That's why he became friends with me. Then he said, Nick, I didn't even know you're in real estate. Why aren't you on Twitter? Like there's a thriving community around what you're doing on Twitter. It's like a country club. It's networking. You can, you know, meet people. And I said, no, Moses, you know, social media is such a joke. It's not for me. There's no way I'm going to make, you know, get anywhere with that. It's just a waste of time. He's like, okay, fine. And six months later, he was, he texted me again and said, Nick, seriously, you need to get on Twitter. Look at what just happened. You know, look at all these people on here. And I said, okay, fine. So I went on Twitter with a radical different mindset of most real estate entrepreneurs that I was going to share everything. I'm going to share my profit and loss statements. I'm going to share how we do business. I'm going to share every single thing, everything. And people told me that I was crazy. They're like, Nick, all you're doing is breeding competitors. Like why, what is there to gain by you going on social media and being so open? And I said, you know what? I think that it'll open doors, networking, and I'll learn a lot. Those are my three goals. And I think within three months, we had raised $500,000 to close on a self-storage facility from people that I met on Twitter. You fast forward another three months and I had almost 50,000 followers and I was selling a real estate course and scaling up my knowledge and scaling up my media company and also meeting partners that are now exploding our real estate private equity company. So in about a year, um, we're about a year in from the first real benefits of Twitter. I started in April. So yeah, 14 months. It has fast forwarded my career 20 years. We've raised $10 million from outside investors to, to buy real estate and building a media company, doing a ton of self-storage consulting and making great friends and meeting people like you, Jay. Man, I love that. And, you know, for a long time, this, this sweaty startup mentality was kind of positioned at odds from like the tech Silicon Valley type of entrepreneurship. What is its relation to like the creator economy and people who are trying to build media businesses today? Do you see it as antithetical or do you see it as complementary the way it seems to be for your business? No, I think a creator is a, is a service provider. When you dig deep down into the function of any business, whether it's an agency or you're doing work for money of any kind, which in, a, in the media space and the creative economy is a very significant part of what we're all trying to do, the fundamentals are the same. You're trying to sell your vision to help a client, you're trying to sell it at a rate that can allow you to hire and scale and build a small business first and then a larger company and then an even bigger company after that. And the end goal for all of us is to spend our time doing what we want to be doing, which is doing a podcast with you or going on a vacation or picking up a hobby or continuing to build your business, whatever it might may be. So I think our goals are all the same and the fundamentals of business are the same in the creative economy as they are with sweaty startups, right? The hiring, the training, the selling, the key skills that make you a good entrepreneur. And a hint, just a hint that the skills that make you a good entrepreneur 
are not at all what make you good at your craft. They're not the same. When we come back, Nick and I talk about why the skills that make you such a great entrepreneur are so different than the skills that make you great at your craft. Right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Nick Huber. Before the break, Nick and I were talking about the similarities and differences between sweaty startups and digital creator businesses. And he said that the skills needed to be a great entrepreneur are not the same skills needed to be a great creator or great at your craft. This is a really important lesson. So I asked him to elaborate on that. I may be the best lawn manicure specialist in the world. I'm really good on a lawnmower. I'm really good on a trimmer. I'm really good with with weed control and pest control and, and fertilization. That is not correlated at all with how well I can build a landscaping or lawn care company. I may be the best logo designer in the world. And yes, maybe I can charge more per hour, but I would still be a freelancer. If I'm going to build a company, how good I am at logo design means nothing, nothing at all to how well I can hire, train, manage, delegate, sell myself. So The key concept that people forget all the time is, oh, I need to get really, really good at my craft and then the world will open up for me. Well, unfortunately, if you're doing anything at scale with entrepreneurship, you're not going to be doing it long. If the CEO of the logo design company is still designing logos, that's a problem. If the CEO of the media company is still building websites, that's a problem, right? You can't grow beyond that. So it is all the same. Hiring, training, selling, delegating, and marketing, right? So those are the things that are important and none of that, nobody's passionate about that uncomfortable stuff. I mean, doing the uncomfortable things is what leads you to grow. And that is often interviewing, hiring, you know, having uncomfortable sales conversations, asking for more money, setting expectations with clients, taking all those really tough phone calls with angry customers. None of that stuff is the fun part. This is another side of creator businesses that isn't talked about enough either because these big creators that do have, you know, personalities, they're not writing their emails most of the time. Not if they have like a large media brand where they're doing podcasts or doing YouTube channels, they have their email news, they're doing, doing all these things, all these channels. Chances are they are not behind the keys of that email announcing the podcast episode just went out. 
you start that way. Everybody starts that way. And a lot of them may still be in that phase, but a lot of the people we look up to, like they're not doing all that. They have a team and that's okay. Yeah. It's not bad that they have a team. It's not problematic. I will say that the creative economy is much more scalable from a solopreneur perspective. If you want to be a freelancer, you can make really, really good money not working that much. You can do it. But if you want to build a business that runs without you, different story. So you said Twitter has fast forwarded your career 20 years. And you said your approach was to share everything you're doing, even if that quote unquote breeds competitors. What other strategies or approaches have you put into play now so that you're making sure that the things that are working continue to work. Like how do you approach Twitter on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Yeah, I'll start with a couple mistakes that I see that I think people make on Twitter. Number one, they tweet too much. They're tweeting too often. There's people like Gary Vee that are saying, you need to be bang, 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 bang all the time. No, Twitter is for people who want to get smarter. And, and if I, somebody's overloading my feed with dumbass thoughts, they're going to get unfollowed in a second. Every single tweet you make, and it can be three tweets a week or three threads a week or one thread a week like Julian Shapiro. Look at how Julian Shapiro does Twitter. He went from 2,000 followers that just came because he had a handle to almost 200,000 followers now in less than a year. And he does one thread a week. He does not do one-off tweets. None of them, right? What does that tell you? Look at Sahil Bloom. Look at, I mean, I try to stay disciplined, but I'm so addicted to Twitter that I can't help but just spray the thoughts out there sometimes. But I'm trying to get better. I'm getting really disciplined about if this tweet doesn't make somebody think hard about this new concept and a smart person go, hmm, that's an interesting thought. I haven't thought about that before. If the tweet doesn't accomplish any of that, I don't tweet it. It doesn't happen. And that, that makes me a good follow for people who want to A, not get overloaded and B, want to get a little bit smarter when it comes to entrepreneurship, making money or real estate, whatever it might be. Number two, I'm actually in the trenches doing something. There are far too many people on Twitter who are out there tweeting about who knows what when they're sitting there doing absolutely nothing but tweeting. My Twitter is a good, I'm a good follow on Twitter because I'm actually buying, I bought $20 million worth of real estate in the last six months and I'm talking about it all right? That makes me a little bit more unique than most of the followers on Twitter. I mean, there's some other simple things like just good copywriting, right? The first line of a tweet needs to be, okay, that sounds off. Like that sounds, I disagree with that. Second line of a tweet. Oh, actually I, I totally agree with that. And then the rest of the tweet, the rest of the thread brings out the nuance. It, it hammers down on that nuance and makes people be like, hmm, that's a really interesting way of thinking about that one concept or whatever it might be. Obviously, no politics ever on Twitter. You're alienating <laughs> half the world. There are a couple little small things too, right, that, that really help. How have you thought about, you know, that, that was the creator side. How have you thought about interacting with other people or consuming Twitter? Yeah, I mean, there's a dark side of Twitter as a mini influencer, right? I only have 130,000 followers, but there's a dark side of being able to think something and put it on, put it on Twitter and instantly you have 20,000 people who have seen it. And they're going to tell you whether you're, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant learning experience from my side. I mean, people think that I'm just on Twitter to teach and listen to myself talk. No, if I, if I feel, if I have kind of a half-baked idea that I think is, you know, oh, I'm not really sure how to think about this. I'd like to get some, like, I want to have a conversation with somebody smart. Generally, you pick up the phone. I'm going to call Jay and I'm going to say, Jay, I'm having this thought. What do you think about this concept? Let's, 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 you know, let's jam on this for a little while. Well, now I can make a thread and I'm not going to make a thread being like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm going to pick a side and I'm going to hammer it home. And I'm going to be very, I'm going to seem like I'm, I'm very strongly held opinion. Right. And then I'm going to let 20,000 really smart people or a hundred thousand really smart people tell me 
where my blind spots are and what I'm missing and what I'm think what I should be thinking differently. It is a phenomenal way to get a lot smarter, a lot faster if you come at it with an open mind. Do you spend much time looking at your own feed? Yeah, I, I probably spend most of my time interacting with comments. I get 30 DMs a day. I can't keep up with all the comments on on there. It's it's a little bit overwhelming, but I also spend time interacting with 20 plus awesome real estate private equity managers who are in the trenches doing it. And where else can you get that interaction, right? Where else do you get a look into the mind of the smartest people in your field? You can, I literally get to see what they're thinking about and how they interact with questions and, and, and they're helpful. I mean, it's, it's literally a club, a community that is free that gives you access to the best minds. It's literally a look into somebody's mind, which is just fascinating to me. How do you think about the way you prioritize your time with the real estate business versus the growing digital platform that you have under the sweaty startup brand? It's a double-edged sword because I could easily see just being totally consumed and working 90 hours a week because the opportunities are growing like crazy. I mean, a business is about momentum. We started out saying yes to everything. Back in 2011, 2012, we were going to try anything, yes to anybody. We'd get lunch with anybody. As you get more successful, as you get more experience, as you get more influence, the opportunities start to really explode. So I say no 99% of the time. I don't answer most of the DMs. I don't take random calls. I don't take meetups. I, I'm really careful about what podcasts I, I mean, you just have to, you have to, if you're going to, if yeah. you're going to enjoy your life and you're going to be able to still, I still spend 20 hours a week growing my real estate company, spend about 20 hours a week on the, on the media company. And I like to hang out with my kids and play golf. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a tough balance, but I think, I think the overarching theme is that as you get more successful, you have to say no more often. How regimented is that balance? Like, do you have days that this is real estate day that versus this is podcast day, Twitter day, or do you have times of day? I think, um, luckily, I've been I've been producing the podcast now for over two years. I'm 230 episodes in, so I've gotten a lot better. I've gotten a lot better at giving short, punchy, concise. I mean, my style is different. Interviewing is hard. What I learned is like doing interviews like this on my podcast, getting other guests, getting other guests to provide value to my podcast was really tough took a lot of work, a lot of prep, a lot of time. But instead, I can think about things on Twitter or think about things in my real estate company and then also make an episode about those things. So, I mean, it helps that my media company is built around what I'm doing at work because when I'm thinking on work, I can tweet about it. I can do an episode about it. I can share what I learn and I can get a lot better. It's, it's the synergies between the two are massive. But I would say it's not super regimented, no. I want to circle back to something you said a little bit ago that I've been thinking about a lot lately too. You know, you said you're actually out there doing something and tweeting about that. I think there are a lot of people who are really early in their career, maybe they're still in college, uh, who might be listening to this and they think, I want to shortcut everything. Like, I just want to be the person with a following now building products and, and sharing things. And they're missing that experience. Like there, there is something to be said about just having spent time and continue to spend time doing the work on something and talking about that as opposed to trying to conjure <laughs> this following for almost something totally manufactured. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, if I'm early in my career, how should I be prioritizing, you know, today, what type of business I'm building? You know, should I, does it even make sense to try to become a creator right out of the gates if I haven't had industry experience or something like that. That's what makes it so hard. I mean, it's so hard. Everybody wants to be, have a following. Everybody wants to be an influencer. 
everybody wants it all right now, right? It's it's really tough. I think the the one thing that you can do is just try to add value to everybody else. It's a selfish economy. It's a selfish world. Every interaction that you need to have with anybody needs to be a win-win interaction. And if it's not, you're doing it wrong. People network, too many people network with their handout. Jay, help me. Nick, help me. Help me, 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 me. How can you help me? Me. They go to network events. Help me, help me. I'm just a, I'm just a nobody. Help me. That's not how you do it. People don't want people. I mean, yes, you will get people who want to give you a leg up. You'll get people who reach down a helping hand. And I try to do that as well. But when you really, your your network really explodes when you can bring something to the table. Your network explodes when, hey, Jay knows that Nick is really good at self-storage. All these people know that Nick knows self-storage because he talks it. He, he's in the trenches. He's doing it. Oh, so somebody's interested in it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help them get in touch with whoever, right? So I don't know. Too many people... It's really rare to get a big following on Twitter or on any platform without being somebody first. I mean, it sounds it's, that sounds brutal, but you look at the list of the people who are top 50 followers on Twitter, on Instagram, on any social network, and they're NBA players and they're you know celebrities and they're entrepreneurs like Keith Rabot and Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, it's really hard to get influence if you if you don't have an expertise and you can't add value. So I think being able to add value to people's lives is just absolutely critical. In researching this episode, I realized that actually I listened to an interview of you years ago on the Tropical MBA podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. And I remember loving that episode and being like, this is awesome. And then realizing, oh, this is the same guy. Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I just recorded with Dan and it's coming out next week. So I'm, I'm excited. Oh, that's amazing. That's I amazing. love those guys. Yeah, they, they supercharged my career and I, I love their work. I had Dan on the podcast and he referred to like this circular economy of people talking about their experience, trying to gain experience essentially like as a self-licking ice cream cone. Most of the podcasts that were the most successful at the time were what I would call a self-licking ice cream cone. The lessons they were peddling on the show would then inspire you to take action on the lessons, which would then inspire you to buy their products, which would then would give them more fuel to talk about more things on the show. So the whole ecosystem of influence and purchasing and success was happening almost like a pyramid scheme where like the more you believed in what they were saying on the show, the more money they would make, the more things they would have to talk about. Because I sell you on the idea that I can do this. Now I'm doing that. And now I'm selling more of that. No, I love um, it. It's correct. <laughs> I mean, I, I would recommend that people just get uncomfortable. If you get uncomfortable, if you go out and try things that, and I'm not talking about trying things that are fun and try, and sitting in your room doing what you care about. I'm talking about getting out and selling yourself, trying to sell some work, trying to make some money, trying to build something that's uncomfortable. That's when, that's when your world opens up. As soon as you get uncomfortable, I mean, yeah, it's it's the momentum behind it, the momentum, the confidence, the learning, the experience, and then yeah, it's a self-licking ice cream cone. You, once those things start happening, it starts compounding, and you start to get better, and then you can actually can do it, and you can deliver, and you can build, and you can become an influencer, and all that stuff. Do you think that there's more opportunity in sweaty startups than there were in 2011 when you started, or do you think that opportunity is getting narrower? No, it's expanding. I mean, this is this is the bottom line. I mean. 20 years ago, 5% of people paid to have their lawn cut. Today, 40% of people pay to have their lawn cut because people are doing less and less. I mean, I'm never going to cut my lawn again because I'm not the best at it. I'm going to get the best person for the job here to my house to do the lawn care. Our grand, My grandfather, my father 
Something went wrong with the sink. Something went wrong with the toilet. Something went wrong with the drywall. Guess what? He fixed it. Me, I call my dad. I call my grandfather. I say, oh, you know, my sink's not working. Or, oh, my, my truck, some, it's shaking in a weird way. My truck is messed up. I don't know how to do anything myself. The next generation knows nothing about repair. So who are they going to call? They're going to call companies to do everything. So the demand is skyrocketing for service businesses while the supply, the people interested in it, the people who make it their careers is diminishing. Everybody goes to school to study liberal arts and marketing. Nobody goes, very few people nowadays, especially the competent people. I'll, I'll just say it, like the people who have a lot of potential are not going after sweaty startups. So the competition is, all you have to do is answer the phone to make a lot of money, in my opinion. It's so perverse. Those those competent people who have those skills are going tens of thousands of dollars in debt to learn something that's way more competitive. <laughs> yeah, sad. That's, that's my mission. That's my life mission is to at least let people know that there's an option, whether or not they whether or not they want to sweat. I mean, most people aren't. Most people aren't going to want to sweat. Nobody wants to do this work. I mean, what I'm saying right here sounds sexy until you get out there and it's 99 degrees and you have a power washer in your hand. That's not fun work, right? Not many people are willing to do it, but my mission is to at least shine some light on some opportunities being there. I know this episode is a little outside the norm for this show, but I'm here to help you make a living from your art and creativity. And so I think it's my responsibility to help shed some light on the business side of your creative business too. Nick is the consummate entrepreneur. Guys like him who are actively getting uncomfortable and doing the hard, sometimes sweaty work that others avoid are people we can learn a lot from. This conversation and last week's conversation with Jack Recider really inspired me to take Twitter more seriously. And to push myself to put effort into Twitter, I created a free challenge called Tweet 100 that you can join too. With Tweet 100, the goal is to write one good tweet or thread every day that you're proud of. One tweet a day, that's it. But think of this like a 100-day project, similar to what Lily Stamps did in episode number 47 with her ceramic mugs. A simple 100-day project could change your entire life. If you want to join me in this challenge and take part in our public leaderboard, visit tweet100.com. The link is in the show notes. And if you want to learn more about Nick, you can follow him at Sweaty Startup on Twitter or visit his website at sweatystartup.com. Links to both of those are in the show notes. Thanks to Nick for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todhunter for mixing the show and to Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.